in that particular genre in the Bible. Okay? Today, we're going to look at narrative, parable, exposition, and law. Those are the four types of genre, or those are the four genres that we're going to look at today. Let's pray and add God's, or ask for God's blessing on this time. <clears throat> Holy Father, I pray, Lord, that you would equip me. Lord, you know I've studied and, I, and I've prepared a, a present, uh, presentation to help explain this, but God, I pray that your spirit would, would give life to it, that you would allow me to explain clearly and to think clearly and allow them to be able to understand clearly, and that you would aid them in understanding your scriptures through what we talk about today. Lord, bless our time. Speak to us, Lord, and instruct us. And uh, make yourself evident uh, through this lesson. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. The first genre is one that's probably most familiar to us, even though we might not recognize it, the name at first, and that's narrative. What's a narrative? Yeah, you may notice that the, the word narrative has the root that sounds like another word, narrator, right? Somebody who tells a story. A narrative is just that. It's a story. So this is something that goes back even to our childhood, right? Oh, yeah, story time. And there are plenty of stories in the Bible, accounts of different events and different characters. And this would include things like history and biography. <clears throat> what are some books in the Bible that are examples, clear examples of narrative? Yes, Genesis is a good example of narrative. What's another book? There's some narrative in Exodus, yes. What's another book? Yep, the different Old Testament history books. Any New Testament books? Acts, the Gospels. They're all examples of narrative. They're telling you stories about the different characters, telling you the history of what happened. Very good. <clears throat> now, narrative, in comparison to the other genres, is probably one that is naturally interesting to us. I think we've talked about this a little bit before. We're innately drawn to characters. We want to know what happens to them. So we can follow along with narrative um, relatively well. And we often look, as we should in narrative, for examples to imitate or to not imitate from different people. As we do this, though, we do want to keep in mind two interpretive principles. And I've put them on, on the slide here as little remember notes. First, when you're reading narrative, when you're reading the stories about these different characters, remember, just because a good person does something does not mean that you should do it too. I'll say that in a little bit more expanded way. <clears throat> we should only look to imitate a person's actions in narrative if his actions are commanded or commended elsewhere in scripture. What, what are some examples of flesh of that? You might say, what? Don't I want to just imitate good people? I mean, they're righteous. I want to be like them. Well, sometimes God does unique things with certain people in the Bible. For example, think about the miraculous. Consider the book of Acts. There are a lot of different miracles that happen in that book. The Spirit is working very obviously, supernaturally. What were some of the miracles in the book of Acts? What's one miraculous thing that happened? Exactly. Yeah. The gift of tongues. 
put on display in Acts, first in Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost, where they're suddenly able to preach in languages they didn't know before and they never were trained in, and they're able to declare the things of God. Obviously miraculous, an amazing thing. What else? Healings, right? So many healings going on. Handkerchiefs taken from the apostles were healing people. Uh, if I remember in Acts as well, it talks about a, even if the, the apostle's shadow would fall on somebody, he'd be healed. My goodness, that's awesome. What's another kind of miracle? Yeah, really good. Um, towards the end of Acts, poor guy fell out the window, fell asleep, and uh, he was dead, but Paul brought him back to life. That was obviously a miracle. But miracles didn't just happen in Acts. Miracles happen throughout the Bible, right? We see different righteous characters experiencing or doing miracles. Think about the Old Testament. What are some miracles from the Old Testament? Yeah, Steve. Yeah, with Elijah and Elisha, the um, number of miracles, but the resurrection being one, resurrection of the, the sun and also the oil not running out and uh, allowing the woman to pay off her debts uh, with, the, with the oil that she sold. What's another example? Yeah, Dwayne. Now, creation itself was a miracle. That was a supernatural uh, event. And there are a lot, of, a lot of different miracles. We would take all of our time today if we just tried to think of all the different miracles in the Bible. The question to ask, and this relates back to my remember note, is should we expect miracles to happen today? Should we expect the Spirit to work in the same supernatural way? There's some that claim yes. <clears throat> but even though God did these things, He actually did these things, He did these miracles to and through people in the Old and New Testaments, I would argue that these types of miraculous gifts and abilities are not guaranteed for us today. And they're not things that we should be seeking out because they were unique in their own time. If you think about the New Testament church and the book of Acts, it is true that the Spirit was working miraculously, but for what reason? Just to benefit the Christians at that time? No. It was part of a pattern that God has um, used even in the Old Testament, where he gave validating signs to the people who were preaching new revelation or who were giving new revelation from God. Uh, I think um, the words for miracles are even translated as, as signs. Many miraculous signs, with many miraculous signs, they presented the word. Those signs confirmed the apostles and the preachers in the New Testament because they had this new revelation about Jesus and a new covenant. Just as Moses was confirmed by miracles. Remember when Moses is speaking to God in the burning bush, he says, how are they going to believe me? What are they, how will they actually trust whether God actually spoke to me? And he says, well, you'll be able to do these miracles. You'll be able to have your rod turn into a snake. you put your hand into your garment and come out and it'll be leprous. So we gave him signs. Elijah and Elisha had signs. Daniel had signs. Jesus had signs, right? He says, if you don't believe me, believe the works that the Father gave me to do. He gave me signs. So when the revelation was communicated, when the revelation was finished, what happened historically with each one of these people? Signs disappeared often when those people disappeared. The signs accomplished their purpose. So yes, we do have the same spirit today, and it's just as powerful now as it was back then, but we should not expect or seek the spirit to work in us the exact same way as it did for that unique situation in the New Testament church. 
course, there are Christians that do expect this, and this is why we have the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. People who are obsessed with recreating the New Testament church in all its facets, even the miraculous ones, even though that time was unique and those experiences and those miracles were not meant to be imitated. This is what I mean about being careful about imitating actions just because righteous people did them and not having that action or, or that, that seeking of that thing confirmed by the rest of Scripture. Not just the miraculous, however. We can also apply this with moral choices. Remember Rahab? Rahab is praised in the New Testament for her faith. What is it that she did that demonstrated her faith? That's right. She hid the spies. And we can read uh, about the account in Joshua. So open your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 2. Turn to Joshua chapter 2. We'll just refresh ourselves in this. We'll look at verses 1 to 6. Joshua 2, verses 1 to 6. I'll read this. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, <clears throat> saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the kings of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. We'll stop right there. So we do see this faith being demonstrated. She's decided to hide the spies, the spies from Israel, and later on she's going to confess, the reason I'm doing this is because I know that, that God is with you. We've heard about you and we're afraid of you, and I know that you're going you're to gain control of this land. But there's something about this account that might make us a little bit uncomfortable about what Rahab does. Why might we be a little bit uncomfortable? She lies. She lies. <clears throat> Was her lying then okay? If she said, you know, here's a great example of faith, Rahab. And she's lying right here in Joshua. Is it possible to lie from faith? We probably could get into a philosophical discussion about what kind of obligation she actually had to tell the truth to this city. After all, she is betraying them to the Israelites. But hopefully you see the principle here. Just because she lies here, we're not going to suddenly say, oh, okay, righteous people can lie. I'm going to imitate that. We know the rest of the Bible says that we are to speak the truth, especially Jesus who says in Matthew 5.37, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So again, we're seeing that, that principle that we want to remember. One final example, think about polygamy. There's a lot of polygamy in the Old Testament, especially with righteous people. They have more than one wife. Can you think of any examples? Solomon, yes, he had many wives. Who else? David, yes, who else? Abraham, anybody else? Jacob. 
those are, when you think about people that are reverenced and that are referred to in the Bible as being righteous or being, or being very special people, those four names come up a lot. Yet each of them had more than one wife. Was God okay with polygamy? He never comes out and has a prophet say, hey, you've got more than one wife. You need to repent. Nobody ever does that. Was God then okay with polygamy? Well, even if the Bible doesn't have a verse that directly calls out polygamy in the Old Testament, it should have been clear from when marriage was first established in Genesis 2.24. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read the verse for you. This is where the standard was set. It's the same verse that Jesus referred to when he was trying to correct the understanding of divorce in Israel in the New Testament. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I know you're not looking at it, but just thinking about it, hearing it, what is it about that verse that forbids polygamy? A man shall be joined, or it said, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Exactly. Wife is singular. Man, wife, both singular. Then they become one flesh. So God never intended for polygamy to be accepted, even though he endured some of his righteous ones having more than one wife. It's not like, however, that doing so didn't have consequences for the people involved. Each one of those people, Abraham, Jacob, David, and Solomon, had some pretty drastic consequences of having more than one spouse. There was competition, jealousy, bitterness between the wives, and also it's a, as a result of David's many wives, it's one of the sons of those wives who would actually try and kill him. Absalom's rebellion was partially due to the fact that he had many wives and many sons. And, of course, Solomon's wives led him away from the Lord. So, again, we see the principle. When reading narrative, we need to keep in mind what is sometimes described by theologians as as this concept. Some things are merely descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, they're not meant for you to imitate. You need to check, you need to assess that with the rest of Scripture. That's the first thing we want to remember. Secondly, though, I want to remember something else. It's it's kind of related. We need to remember that sometimes there's just not enough information to judge whether you should imitate a person or not, to judge whether somebody's actions are righteous or unrighteous. There's just not enough info. And when there isn't enough info, we should just leave it be. For example, speaking of polygamy, think of David's great sin that that involved one of his wives, and that was Bathsheba. She was the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah. And how was it that David actually began to lust after her and to begin his, uh, his descent into adultery? If you remember the story. How did it start? Yeah. That's right. He was on the roof and he saw her bathing. He saw she was beautiful and he lusted after her. Let's refresh ourselves a little bit in the account by turning to where it appears, 2 Samuel. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. Second Samuel 11, we'll look at verses 1 to 5. Okay, starting in verse 1. Second Samuel 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed 
I walked around the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now, when we think about this famous section of, the, of Scripture, one question you might have is, how complicit was Bathsheba in this adultery? How much of a role did she play? Did she want this? Did she not want this? Historically, many have laid a lot of blame on Bathsheba. They say Bath Bathsheba was trying to ensnare David. She shouldn't have been bathing on her roof. She should have known the palace was close by. The palace was a big building. She would have noticed she, could have, or she should have thought that David might be on it. She was trying to catch his attention, or she was careless about catching his attention. Maybe. Maybe that's true. The text doesn't really tell us that. Or some have seized on the fact that she did not refuse David's request to come. David sent for her. She didn't refuse, so she must have wanted to commit adultery or have been open to that. Again, maybe. It's possible. But... It's also possible that none of that's true. It's possible that, and I, from the research I did about where baths were and, and houses at that time, I couldn't get uh, too much evidence about this, but it's possible that the roof was the only place that she could bathe and that she had no intention of alluring anybody. And she didn't know David was there. Or it's possible that when David sent for her, she didn't know what he was sending for her about. Or it's possible that when he sent for her, she was intimidated or she was allured by him. We really don't, get much information about it. But I think the point is, it doesn't really matter what her intention was. Whether she was trying to ensnare David or not, the Bible doesn't focus on that. The narrative focuses on David and his choices. We get a ton of information about what he's thinking and about what he's doing. Whether Bathsheba sought to entice David or not, David was responsible as a man, as God's anointed, as king of Israel, to follow God. So if we're to draw a lesson here, it should be from David, about whom we're informed a lot, rather than Bathsheba, about whom we are given very little. So that's the idea with this principle. When there's not enough information to make a judgment call on a character, don't worry about it. Don't focus on that. If the, if the text doesn't focus on it, and you're not able to make a judgment based on the evidence that's there, then uh, don't try to. Another example of this, think about Joseph and his dreams. Actually, turn to the section while I refresh you or give you a little bit of background. Turn to Genesis 37. This is where Joseph tells his brothers his dreams. What was the relationship that Joseph, or if you could describe the relationship between Joseph and his brothers, what was it like? Yeah, they were very jealous of him. And not just jealous, how else could we describe their emotions towards him? Yeah, right. They hated him. Yes. Let's read what Genesis 37 says. This is Genesis 37, verses 2 to 11. Starting verse 2. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw 
that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Okay. So here's a, a question, an interpretation question, looking at this section. Did Joseph sin in the way he was telling the dreams to his brothers? Some might say, Joseph is being prideful here. He knows his brothers don't like him. He knows he's the favorite son. And now he's rubbing these dreams in their faces. Others might say, no, Joseph is being really naive. Either Joseph is not aware of how his brothers are going to react to his dreams, or maybe he is aware, but the dreams themselves are just so fascinating and strange to him that Joseph can't help but share them, even if he knows his brothers won't like him. And we could relate to that, right? Have you ever had a weird dream? Probably told somebody about it. You're like, man, I had the strangest dream last night. You don't know necessarily whether they want to hear it or not, but you just want to tell somebody because it's so interesting. So was Joseph doing wrong? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know his intentions. It's not really told to us. We don't get enough evidence here to make a judgment call on whether Joseph was being prideful. And again, the text is not focusing on that. If anything, the text is focusing on the truth of the dreams themselves. These dreams would be true. They would come to pass. And that also focuses on the brothers' relationship to Joseph, that they hated him. And Joseph is soon sold into slavery because of that. So, to summarize, as you read through a narrative, as you read through these stories and you hear about these characters, remember these two things. Don't necessarily imitate a righteous person's actions if it's not reinforced in the rest of the Bible. And don't judge a person's choice if there's not enough evidence to do so. Questions or comments before we move on? <laughs> okay, I think we might be able to say whether it was wise or not, considering the circumstances, but whether to make a judgment call of what's going on in Joseph's heart, I don't think we can do that. But yeah, I think there's some wisdom there. Yes, yeah, maybe we can learn from that too. <clears throat> yeah, Roy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He could have been naive, or maybe he was being a little bit prideful, but again, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
It is pretty subtle. I, I don't know if we can go so far as to say that David should have been at war, but he does make that contrast um, in that section where he says, this is the time when kings normally go out to battle, but David was in Jerusalem. Uh, you might be able to, to argue that, yeah, he's the king, he's got great generals, he doesn't have to be at war, but certainly he is being very idle. And uh, one of the other details there you may notice, it says he got up from his bed. So he was just, you know, lounging around. So maybe there is something to be said about that. What are you going to say, Francisco? That is a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, that law before. So that, that is another thing to consider there. It's good. Anyways, let's keep going. Narrative is a good, something that makes, a, makes up a good portion of the Bible. And these are, in the Bible's narratives, these are nonfiction. They're all true. There are some fiction stories, though, that appear in the Bible. And we call these parables. Parables. Parables are nonfiction, but what do they do? Yeah, they teach a lesson, usually about God. They show truth. They're really, I think we can think of them as kind of illustrations. They're pictures. It's like in a sermon, Pastor Bobby says something, and then he, he says, it's kind of like this, and he, and he tells a story or he gives a picture about it. That's what parables do. They're like illustrations through stories or through pictures. Where do we find parables in the Bible? Yes, Gospels are the main place, though there are some other parables that appear in the Old Testament. Actually, David is confronted in his sin with Bathsheba by a parable, with the story of the, the somebody in sheep. So like the narrative genre, parables are somewhat easy to follow because they're story-like, and they involve everyday situations, objects, people, so they're pretty relatable. But because parables are pictures illustrations, symbolic of spiritual truth, we must remember one principle in particular, and that is you have to rely on context to interpret parables. You have to rely on context. Remember to rely on context to interpret parables. Now, we're always looking at the context, so that's not necessarily something new, but it's particularly important with the parables because without context, parables could mean almost anything. And illustrations, stories, can be used for various purposes, right? A pastor might use an illustration in one situation to show one truth, but he could use that same illustration in another situation to show something else, perhaps. We have to see the context if we're going to interpret those parables correctly. Think about the parable of the sower. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Matthew 13, verses 3. Actually, you know what? Let's do turn there. Go to Matthew. Matthew. 
Matthew 13. You probably know this parable well. But just to demonstrate the importance of context. Matthew 13, verses 3 to 8. I won't read through it, though. I just want you to see it in front of you. It's about this farmer who goes out to cast some seed. What is the seed? Word of God. Very good. Uh, what are the various types of soil? Various hearts, right? And how they react to the Word of God. Now, how do you know that? How do you know that's what those things are? That's an important part of the parable, but how do we know that the fruit bearing of these plants actually is the way people respond to the gospel? Yeah, Alan? Yeah, Jesus explains it. We get a, a, a direct interpretation of this parable in verses uh, 18 and following, 18 to 23. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown behind, beside the road. And he goes, he goes on to explain. That's really helpful that he gave that explanation. Because without that, we might go in some pretty weird directions with it. It might be only slightly less likely that this would be the interpretation. That this isn't about the word of God being sown. This is about temptation. The farmer's the devil. And he's sowing temptation. Or he's trying to get temptation in different places. And there's some people who are hard against temptation. And, they, and it won't, they won't yield to it. And maybe angels come in like the birds. And they take away the temptation. And there's some who do yield to it. And not only do they yield, but they bring others into the temptation. It's like bearing fruit at the very end of the parable. But you know that, that that interpretation is ridiculous because Jesus explains it. You know, you don't even have to consider that. And many parables, thankfully, they have one of these explanations close by. Without them, we'd be very, very much like the crowds that Jesus says, they'll not understand this. Did you notice in the middle between the parable and the explanation of the parable, there's a section here where Jesus, Jesus says something pretty profound. Look at verses 10 and uh, down to 13. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So the disciples were blessed. They got the explanation. They got the, the context of those things. The, the, the crowds, most of the time, they were not given that. Yeah, Rob. That would definitely help. And again, that's using context, right? Because there are, and as I'm just about to get to, there are some parables that don't have explanation. They aren't given a direct explanation from Jesus. We don't, be, we don't just say, oh, man, I'm never going to figure out that parable. No, we use context, right? We use the immediate context, and we use the context of the rest of Scripture. So um, there is validity to what you're saying. What about the situations where we don't get explanation? Well, let me give you an example. Um, turn to Luke, actually. Luke chapter 19. Luke 
we still do the same thing. Even if there's not a direct explanation in the context, we have to look at the context to help us interpret the parable. So Luke 19, this is the parable of the minas. Sounds a lot like another parable. Let me read this to you. Luke 19, starting in verse 12. So we said, this is Jesus talking, the nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Okay. So this sounds a lot like the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, but there's some differences. Take a look at the context. Is there anything in the context that will help us better understand what this parable is talking about? What appears around the text? Yes. Uh, the, the text itself is a little bit brutal, especially that last line about being slaughtered in his presence. My goodness, that's pretty, that's pretty violent. Very good. We have the story of Zacchaeus, and uh, people were grumbling about Oh, he's gone to go eat with a tax collector. But then he repents in front of everybody, and Jesus says, look, salvation's come to this household, for he too is the son of Abraham. Yeah, Steve, what else? I believe this is like he's on his way into Jerusalem, and the disciples are a little bit anxious about Jesus coming to Jerusalem. I think there might be a little bit of that. Notice verse 11. Right before we started reading, it says, while they were listening to these things, it's right after the Zacchaeus passage, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And we see that. We see him actually go into Jerusalem right after this parable. Verse 28, after he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Beth Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent in two of the disciples and they get ready for the triumphal entry. Knowing that, how does that impact our interpretation of this parable about this nobleman who's going away to receive the kingdom and he's telling his servants to be faithful in the meantime and he's got people who don't want him to be king and he slaughters them when he comes back. 
I think, yes, we have to say that there is something to do with the coming of the king, and this is not just some story about any old king, considering the context where Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem, in a sense, to be proclaimed king, even though they're not going to do that, they're going to reject him. There's obviously a parallel between what Jesus is about to do and what he talks about in this story. What else? Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Mm. And especially the timing. I feel like there's, there, if we look at the context, there's an interaction between the timing, right? Because what were, what were the people expecting? They're expecting the kingdom now, right? Verse 11 says they thought that the kingdom would appear immediately. But the very first thing he says in verse 12, or yeah, verse 12 in the parable is he says, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive the kingdom and then return. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, it's a good observation. Yeah, he's some kind of heir, and maybe they're the way the Romans inaugurated new kings, maybe that has something to do with it. Hopefully you're seeing that. We're not, we're not going to be off base when we say, okay, these things are talking about Jesus right here because of the context, because it's about his, uh, people are expecting him to, to bring on the kingdom, to bring the kingdom into Israel, and then he tells this parable, which has some different things to say about the kingdom, emphasizing a different timing, emphasizing a, uh, a need for faithfulness, even if the kingdom doesn't come immediately, even if it's going to be far away. And also we see something about the rejection of that kingdom. I mean, there's a reason we react, just as um, Mr. Sean was saying, about, whoa, this is violent. And in fact, you don't see these details in the parable of the talents. There's no mention of people being slaughtered or subjects. But in this context, with the expectation about the kingdom and the triumphal entry happening afterwards, I think we do see an emphasis on... Um, a warning against rejection. He says, people don't want the king, just as what is actually going to happen to Jesus, he says, they're going to be judged. They're going to be judged for that. So again, I hope you see this important concept. With the parables, look in the context. We've got to remember to, to pay close attention to the context. Oftentimes, we'll see a direct explanation. Praise the Lord. But sometimes, we don't get a direct explanation of that parable. But we still want to use the context, the immediate context especially, but also the rest of Scripture. Questions or comments before we move on? So we've seen two different types of storytelling. These stories, besides instructing, being instructive themselves, they also provide a basis for a third genre in the Bible, and that's exposition. And exposition is kind of an advanced-sounding word. Does anybody know what it means? Yeah, Roy. Exactly. When you think exposition, think explanation. When we talk about expository preaching, that's essentially what it is. It's explaining preaching. 
that takes a verse, discusses its context, gives you the grammar, gives you the different evidences from the text as to why the instruction is a certain thing, and then what you should do about it. It explains and persuades. Exposition, in many ways, is similar to an essay or an argument. We have a, a truth that is, that, that is being explained, and someone is trying to persuade the audience of that truth. So think about the Bible. Where do we see examples of somebody who's explaining a truth or trying to persuade his audience of a truth? Is that you, Linda? Okay, he does a little bit of, he's explaining truth within the narratives of the, of the Gospels. But in terms of books, what books are examples of, of expositions? Say that again. Yes, yeah, the Pauline epistles, right? And the other letters in the New Testament. A lot of these letters are essentially expositions. They're explanations of truth. So we definitely see these, and they're a little bit different than the, uh, the narratives because they're not stories. They make reference to the historical events, but they're more arguments, carefully constructed and more abstract. They are intensely rational. They appeal to your mind, presenting points in a logical fashion and then giving you evidence, either by referring to the Old Testament or referring to different historical things that have happened or giving revelation from God. So we can, we can follow them in a, in a certain, to a certain extent because we can follow arguments. And the great way to make sure that we can understand the argument is do something that we talked a little bit about before. That's what I want you to remember about exposition is pay close attention to structure. Pay close attention to structure because the way an author arranges his presentation, his explanation is going to tell you a lot about what he's trying to prove, what are his main ideas. Remember to pay close attention to structure. A good example of an exposition is the book of Hebrews. Now, that's kind of a big book. If you're talking about doing practice with this, looking at the structure, it may take us a little bit of, a little bit of time. It's 13 chapters. So what I've done, I, I did a, a breakdown of the structure. And I, I divided, or no, let me ask you this. Just to remind ourselves, how's a, what's a good way that we can get a sense of a book's structure or a section structure in the Bible? It's something we talked about before. Do you remember? We're observing, but we also want to do something else as we observe. Yeah, Ron? Definitely want to pay attention to transition words, yes. Something else, though. Remember when we did this with Mary's song? The Magnificat? Yes. How do we get, how can we help ourselves get a good sense of the structure of a, of a section of the Bible or of a book? Yeah, Sean. Yeah, context is important too. What we've said so far is, is all it's all important. Observations, paying attention to transition words, looking at the context. What I'm trying to bring back to your minds is the idea of dividing and labeling this section. Dividing it based on, yeah, transition words and your observations, but ideas that are similar to one another. You say, okay, this whole section seems to be talking about um, God's favor to Mary personally, so I'll group that in one section. And this section is talking about God's favor to Israel, I'll group that in another section. This section talks about God's favor to the Gentiles, so I'll group that in a section. And you can put your own little labels on them. That's what, that's what we do 
And that's a, a great way to discern structure because you're looking for how the ideas are grouped together. That's what structure is, right? It's just the organization of your ideas. So you, you look for what is similar and group those things together. So what I've done with the book of Hebrews is I've grouped the ideas and put my own labels on them. Unfortunately, there were too many to put on one slide, so I had to go a little bit more basic. But let me show you. And as you take a look at this, see if you can tell me what seems to be the author's main ideas in the book of Hebrews. You might remember this from your own study and from the pastor preaching on it. So I split it into five parts. This, of course, is not inspired. You might do it a little bit differently, but this should help you get a sense a little bit of Hebrews, the structure of the book of Hebrews. What seems to be the main message that the writer tries to explain in the book of Hebrews? Or one of the main messages. Yeah, it's all about perseverance, right? Based on what? Yes. What do you, what, if he's saying something about, you, we've got to persevere, what's the argument for that? Based on what? A lot of different things, right? He, he uses a lot of different um, ideas to support this main point. We have to persevere. Don't fall away. First of all, look at how superior Christ is to the thing that you want to fall back to. Half of Hebrews is all about that. Christ is better than angels. Christ is better than Moses. He's a better high priest. His covenant is better than the old covenant. That covenant was inadequate. He's better than that. He gives you reason to persevere. But you are going to need faith. But that's the same thing that they had back in the old days. And that's where, um, around Hebrews 10, you see on my outline, the need for faith in God, their father. <clears throat> that's where we hear about, by faith, Abraham did this. Or by faith, um, Rahab did this. They were looking to God. They persevered based on faith in, the, in the, what their God provided. But we also see that we're going to need to help one another in this. This, that book is all about persevering and not falling away. You only see it mentioned twice here in the outline, but multiple times in the book of Hebrews it says, don't fall away, because if you do, there's going to be huge judgments on you. Don't be like those in Psalm 95 who harden their hearts and turn back. Don't be like them. <clears throat> so we can get a much better idea of what the author is trying to present in an exposition by paying attention to the structure. Obviously, this is, this is only a basic outline, so... I wish we could flesh this out a little bit more, but hopefully you get the idea. We've done a little bit with structure in the past. Just keep that in mind. Exposition, pay close attention to the structure. <clears throat> All right, one more for today. The last type of genre that I want us to look at is law. <clears throat> law. Think about law, we're thinking about rules, think about commandments. Where do we see books that are all about laws in the Bible? I hear, I hear a few people saying things. The Pentateuch, right? Particularly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's where we get laws. 
Now, you might be thinking to yourself, man, laws are the hardest part for me to read through. Laws are a unique genre. They're meticulous, precise, they're repetitious, not unlike some of the law documents you might see today. And people are not exactly lining up to go read state law or federal law. That doesn't make for the most, or it's not designed with reader interest in mind. But it doesn't mean that reading the law in the Bible can't be both interesting and profitable. We might want to dismiss them because we say, hey, I'm a new covenant believer. I don't, I don't have to obey law. And to an extent, that's true. <clears throat> we know in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council made it clear once and for all that Gentiles did not have to keep the Old Testament law. In fact, no one had to. You could if you wanted to. It's part of your heritage. If you wanted to keep that, that's fine. But you didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't have to keep the, the dietary requirements. You didn't have to keep the ritual parts of the Old Testament law. But it's still very enriching to read the laws because two reasons that I want you to remember, but it has a lot to do with what is actually given to us in the New Testament. Because we have the New Testament, reading Old Testament law actually becomes that much more enriching because, first of all, we can look for demonstration of God's character, and second of all, we can look for pictures of New Testament realities. Even in Hebrews, that's what the book we were just talking about, he refers to the law many times in his argument for believers to persevere. He says the Levitical priesthood was not adequate, but the Melchizedekian priesthood is so much better. How can we appreciate that if we don't know what the Levitical priesthood did? Or when it talks about the sacrifices that they did, they couldn't satisfy. The high priest had to offer them year after year. But Jesus offers a sacrifice once and for all. We miss that unless we go back and read the law. We are a little bit short on time today, but let me at least show you this in one example. Turn to Exodus 28. <clears throat> Exodus 28. This is what might at first glance seem very uninteresting, a description of the garments that the priests are supposed to wear, particularly Aaron, the high priest. <clears throat> now, as we read through this, ask yourself, do I see anything that shows me the character of God? And also ask yourself, do I see something here that complements something I have learned from the New Testament, a New Testament reality? Let's look at verses 6 to 14 in chapter 28. God is instructing. They shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, the work of a skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends, that it may be joined. The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship, of the same material, of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, so you shall engrave, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. 
You shall make filigree settings of gold and two chains of pure gold. You shall make them of twisted cordage work, and you shall put the corded chains on the filigree settings. Okay. What do you observe listening to and reading through that passage related to God's character or related to New Testament realities? Yes, very good, good. And the passage we're not going to be able to get to look at, but in Leviticus 16, we get some instructions about um, the, the tabernacle. But at the very beginning of that instruction, it says, and this is the instruction that God gave after he killed the two sons of Aaron. You remember how that happened? That's right. They didn't come to God in the precise way that God instructed they offered incense that wasn't the kind of incense that God said they were supposed to offer, so he consumed them. So that's a really good point, Francisco. What else do we observe here in Exodus 28? Yes, Sean. That's certainly true throughout the law. Here, we don't have a, a specific consequence in Exodus 28 mentioned, but yes, anytime a, a law of God is violated or he emphasizes many times, you better do this the way that I say to, I am the Lord. And there, there is a, an implication of, yeah, you'll, you'll be suffering consequences if you don't. That's good. Do you notice something? This sticks out to me when I read this section. This whole thing about the onyx stones. The onyx stones are placed on the high priest's shoulders and the sons of Israel have their names engraved on the stones. Why? Yes, yes, that's really good, Alan. These stones, they're part of a picture. They weren't just for decoration. This is supposed to be a symbol, a memorial. He's carrying the burdens of the sons of Israel. He's carrying their sins before God. That's what the high priest is supposed to do. He needs to make, um, make Israel right with God. He has to bring their sins before God. And I don't know how heavy these stones are, but those stones were to, to be a physical reminder of that. And their names are on his shoulders. But now we connect that with a New Testament reality. This isn't just something that Aaron and the priests in the Old Testament did imperfectly. This is something that Jesus does perfectly for us. 
In a sense, he has stones with our names written on his shoulders because he's our high priest. And he brings us before God, brings our burdens, and he takes care of our sin, and he brings it before the Father. So we can see, even though this was, a, this was something written in the Old Testament, it connects with a New Testament reality because Jesus is called our high priest. The other things we could say about this, lots of gold, different color um, uh, material. This would have been very beautiful and probably maybe even expensive. And that's to reflect the, the beauty of God, not to give glory to the priest, but to emphasize the beauty of God. What were you going to say, Roy? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Last, last thing, Steve. Yeah, that's a great observation. The word skillful or skill is used a number of times, even in the section that we just read. So that's a good point. So law is actually really profitable. It's not for us to just dismiss and be like, oh, psh, I don't want to learn about this. No, it's really rich, and it connects with the, it, it makes what we learn in the New Testament that much fuller when we see what's written in the law. And that's it for this week. We've looked at narrative, parable, exposition, and law. Next week, we're going to move more to the poetic side. We'll look at three other genres, poetry, wisdom literature, and prophecy. Let's pray as we close. <clears throat> Holy Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these, this people, Lord, who are eager to understand your word. Lord, I pray that you would guide them by your spirit as they continue to seek, as they continue to seek you in their own studies. I pray, Lord, that you would also guide me as I continue to seek you in my own study. Lord, bless the service today. Let the, the singing... And let our hearts be, or let our singing be, be glorious to you and let our hearts be submitted to you that we would worship you in, um, in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would empower the pastor to speak the clear word to us as well, that he would explain what your word says, that we might be able to understand it. I pray this in your name. Amen.